Good morning, church. Come on. Here we go. If you have a copy of God's word, and I hope you do, if you're taking notes, just jot this down. Generous giving leads to abundance, to abundance. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, the wisest man who had ever lived. And this is what he says in Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. He says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Wait, what? One gives freely. And yet what happens? He grows all the richer. But another, everybody say that guy, that, uh, that guy, there's another that withholds, that hoards what he should give. Somebody say should. He, he should give it away. He should be generous. And what happens to him or her? They only suffer want. Verse 25, whoever brings blessing to others will be enriched. And the one who waters will himself be watered. Isn't that awesome? Can we just say bottom line, freely give, freely give, generosity. God designed you to be generous. God made you in his image and God is a generous God. Do you believe that? That he's not holding anything back. He's a generous God. He gives and gives and gives. And here we see that there's a principle, a universal principle. It's a proverb, right? It's a proverb. And one of the things that comes to our mind when we say, I'm not sure I want wisdom, uh, we end up a little Schmeagle-esque, all right? Is, it, is anybody uh, able to give me your best impression of uh, my precious? Go ahead. So there's something about the heart of every human being that because of the fall, because of sin, we just hold on to things that we should freely let go of. We grasp tighter and tighter the things that we should just be freely giving away and holding open-handed. And the reality is we we don't do that very well, so Solomon observed this, the one who lives this way, God's way of freely giving, and he is, he's never in need, just always, always being given back in return. God takes care of him or her. The giver gets more, the hoarder gets less. And so are you a Schmeagel? Are, are you a hoarder? Are you Schmeagel? A few summers back, I was able to be in uh, one of the lakes that extended family has a little cottage. We were able to line up the kids and we were just tossing them. Kids flying. There's something awesome about being in a place where the water is clean and clear and kids are going again, again, again. And every time I chucked a kid, you know, eight feet in the air, all of a sudden there was somebody else, right? Swimming out to me or, or around my waist. My turn, my turn, my turn. I couldn't chuck them fast enough, right? Like the, the more that I got rid of them, the more that they came. And I'm like, where'd you come from? Who are you? You're not even part of the family. The more that I threw it out, the more that I had lined up. And there's just something awesome about, I can't give it away fast enough. I can't be generous enough that God is going to just give back. But we have a different image. Um, I got a group of uh, lead pastors. I missed the trip. So these are some of my homeboys and they have much sexier bodies than I do. They ended up making a trip to Israel and guess what? It's called the Dead Sea for a reason. Do you know why? Because there's some water coming in, but there's, there's no water going out. It's stagnant. And nobody goes to the Dead Sea to just kind of get cleaned up and freshened up, right? You float on the top because it's so nasty and thick where there is in, but no out. Doesn't create an environment for life. Nothing grows there. It is dead. It's dead. And I wonder which of those two pictures 
would identify our life and our patterns. Maybe I'm not the generous one that I thought I was. Maybe I am holding tightly to that which actually is, it's destroying me because God can't give to a closed fist. He can't put something better in our hands. And we need to ask the question, am I like that? Am I withholding? Am I experiencing not riches, but want and need? What's the condition of my heart? So we want that as the stage is set to be able to look at this passage. Turn with me to Malachi. Malachi, okay? If you're in Proverbs, flip forward towards the end of the Bible. And as you do, if you run into Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, then you've gone too far. As we get to Malachi, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. I just want to share with you. So we have Malachi 3, verses 6 and 8, saying this. This is where it starts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Anybody think that's good news? I, the Lord, do not change. Why is that such a big deal? If God is anything like us, we're done for. If he's fickle, emotional, reactionary, but we have this promise in the book of Malachi, and we have Malachi the prophet speaking to a world that is very similar to ours, and he's saying, God's people need to hear this. The Lord has spoken, and this is what he says, I do not change. Therefore, everybody say therefore, what happens next? What happens if we know that he's an unchanging God? We have this commitment, oh, children of Jacob, right? His people, he says, you're not consumed. What is, it, what is he saying there? If he was not a God of mercy, we would be torched. We would be a pile of ashes. We would be incinerated in a second. Mercy, God's consistent, relentless, loving kindness. From the days of your fathers, verse seven, what has God's people always done? This is what God's saying. Y'all have turned aside from my statutes. You have not kept my law. And this is God's heart. Return to me, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts or the Lord of angel armies. How many of us would just pause and say, I haven't done it right. I haven't been living it God's way, but it's not too late for me. Anybody need to remind yourself of that? It's not too late. It's not too late. Somebody lift up your voice and say, it's not too late. It's not too late. It doesn't matter where we've been. God's heart is still the same. And he's saying, return to me, come back home. Quit your wandering, quit the strain, quit doing it your way, trying to hoard and keep and trying to manipulate and trying to do life according to your standards. It's not too late to come back and say, God, I'm done doing it my way. God, I want, I want to do it your way. I want us to have a relationship again. And what does he say? Return to me and I'll return to you. But you say, and this is God's people barking back at God, right? God, as a good father, is saying, come back home, return. How did God's people respond? But you say, return, return, return to what? We weren't straying. Everything's fine. We're, I'm fine. I'm doing okay, okay? And God's like, no, you're not. You need to come back. What does verse 8 say? Will man rob God? Rob you? Rob you? We ain't stealing anything. We're not taking anything. It's ours. It's ours. Somebody say, actually, actually, verse eight, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in your ties, your contributions, your offerings? And this is the point where the inner lawyer rises up and says, tithing. Well, yeah, we're in Malachi. That's such an Old Testament thing, yo. All right, preacher dude, can 
Can we at least move on past like dark and gloomy Malachi? Like I know in the Old Testament, they had all kinds of rules, but like tithing so old school. The reality is we, we need to understand a few things about tithing, okay? Anybody in favor of clarity? What in the world is this whole tithing thing all about? Hopefully we can agree with what, what God says. And here are 10 tithing truths, okay? Let's just, let's knock them out. Before we do, I was just reading some John Ortberg. He's pumped out like a hundred books. Um, awesome pastor, super helpful. And he just says, tithing is a bad ceiling, but it makes an excellent floor. Tithing, it's a bad ceiling, but it makes an excellent floor. And he, he understands something about tithing. First of all, it means it's a tenth. It's a tenth, one tenth. 41 times the word tithes is used in the Old and the New Testament, both. It's in the whole Bible. It's in the whole thing, okay? Here we go. Number two, it describes an immediate gift at first opportunity. Uh, Deuteronomy 14 talks about this, that uh, if you didn't take it to the place of worship, your tithe, uh, you were actually called to go get it to the house of worship some way, somehow. Like if you're on your deathbed, if you were sick, uh, if you were out of town, uh, Deuteronomy 14 says, uh, get it there somehow, some way, but it's got to get there. The gift that we bring is a symbol of God's ownership, that he owns it all. Do you believe that? That God owns everything. And this idea of a tithe is, God, I just remember every time that I give, I'm reminding myself everything. It all belongs to him. A tenth doesn't belong to him. A hundred percent belongs to him. But that 10% is a symbol. I say it's a symbol. Just like in a couple of weeks, we're going to have baptisms. And do you believe that when somebody is about to go under the water, they're like going to hell. And then when they pop out of the water, they're going to heaven. Is that the way it works? No. Do you believe that they're, they're full of sin, unforgiven sin, and then somehow magical water cleanses them. And then when they pop out of the water that they're just, they're clean and brand new. No. Baptism is a symbol. It's symbolic for a real truth deep down inside. And, and here we have this symbol that God owns everything. Number three, it symbolizes that God, God's ownership of everything. And that seems pretty clear when we look at passages like Psalm 24, one, if you just want to jot that address down, Psalm 24, verse one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Somebody say everything, everything, all of it, all of it. How clear is that? that that's, that's pretty clear. How about this number four? It's off the top. It's off the top. Proverbs 3, 9. Proverbs 3, 9, if you want to jot that down, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Okay. It's off the top. And they were living in a, uh, obviously a farming context. And so, okay, we just had harvest. We're bringing everything in from the field. The first 10, I know where it goes. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. It's off the top. Uh, anybody familiar with Dave Ramsey? Mr. Mr. Cashin in the envelopes, all right? Love that guy. And what Dave Ramsey says that he's asked most often about tithing, because he's got, I don't know if you've hopped on YouTube, he's got all of his like videos, his podcasts, right? All of his stuff. And one of the number one questions he's asked about tithing is, well, Dave, Dave, gross or net? Gross or net? Are we talking gross or are we talking net? Is this before taxes or after taxes? And his response every time over the past decades has been, do you want God to bless you gross or net? 
And that usually ends the conversation. You make up your mind about what you believe God wants you to do. What's going to happen if I give my first fruits off the top? Here is a commitment that God makes. Your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be bursting with wine. Does that mean if I give this much, this is how much I'm getting back? Is there a guarantee that if I if I give 100, that God's like bound to give me what, 200 or 500? It doesn't work like that. Turn your neighbor and say it doesn't work that way. Not at all. Number five, it's a universal principle. It's a universal principle. So walk with me in your mind. Oftentimes we think about the tithe being it's part of the law and like we're not under the law, we're under grace, right? Well, one thing we need to consider is let's go back. Where do we see the tithe introduced? And we have Abraham tithing to this, this dude, King Melchizedek. And Melchizedek uh, preceded the law. Abraham's move to tithe to give 10% preceded the law. So we're talking about 400 years before the law ever came through Moses. There was a principle, a universal principle of the tithe already in place. And then it's repeated again in the New Testament. There's something about this. It's universal and it's rooted in the very beginning. Just like we see the idea of Sabbath. Is, is that one of the top 10? Keep, keep the Sabbath day holy. It's one, one of the 10 commandments. Well, the Sabbath was instated when? It was instated at the end of the first week of creation. The Sabbath preceded the law. It's not a law to follow. It's a universal principle for all of time. And we see the tithe and Sabbath both there, okay? Uh, we can agree to disagree, but at least we got to wrestle with some of these realities, right? Here we go. Here we go. Number six, it predates the law and it continues after the law. Number seven, if you're taking notes, it's practiced throughout church history. Since the earliest days, tithing has been practiced. Can we get real serious? Here's what happened up to about 80 to 100 years ago. The common practice of the church is if you didn't tithe, you were church disciplined out of the church. It was a level of disobedience for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, and they were all wrong for all that time. Maybe. But there was something about church history saying this is a really serious issue of obedience to the word of giving sacrificially. How about this? Number eight, it's a thermometer of spiritual life because we know that Matthew 6.21, Matthew 6.21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How about Luke 16, 13? Anybody remember that? You cannot serve two masters, right? There's something about the heart that is revealed in this area of generosity. And so nine, it's important to God, super important. How important? Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, you got a couple that are saying, well, we just got some money because we sold some stuff and we're we're bringing it to God's house and we're, we're going to give. And the question of, are, are you holding anything back? Are you, are you giving what you're called to give? Well, of course. I mean, of course. Like, look how generous we are. And because they, they sinned against the Holy Spirit, it says that they dropped dead right there. Does anybody think that God thinks this is pretty important? This is kind of a, this is a weighty issue, right? When people start dying at God's house, because of disobedience, we at least have to ask, what does God think about this? And what is God calling me to do in response, right? And how about this number 10? It's a, it's a starting place for New Testament giving, right? In the Old Testament, we're told what? Do not murder. In the New Testament, we're told hatred is murder. In the Old Testament, we're told do not commit adultery. In the New Testament, lust in your mind is an act of adultery in God's eyes. 
So what if tithing is like the on-ramp? And even though in the Old Testament we have kind of this emphasis on 10%, what if, what if that is a starting point for New Testament generosity? And so at least for us to consider as a church together, where are we at in this process of becoming more and more generous? Okay. How about this? God has been so abundantly generous. Do you believe it? God has been so abundantly generous to us that we at least have to assess in response to God's generosity, where am I at? What, what is my heart response? And then what is my financial response to God's generosity? Uh, I always hop on different websites that give stats right around the world. So everybody ready for this one? As we think about God being generous to us, let's just think about where you're at financially. I, I don't know where everybody's at. I know some people are uh, out of jobs, about to go into jobs, transitioning. I know that financially, maybe the past couple of years have been a roller coaster. No matter where you're at, I want you to think in terms of globally right now, okay? Has God been generous to you? Do you believe that you are blessed by God? And I think all of us to some degree would be like, yes. Think about this globally. If you as an individual make more than $11 an hour, you are among the top 10% richest in the world. As a household, if you make more than $39,497, whatever the specific number was, but 39,000 as a household, you're, everybody in your home collectively over 39 grand puts you in the top 10% richest in the world. Some of us, we make well more than that. Some of us, we might be a little bit above that, right at that. For some, we're just under. So maybe you're not among the top 10. Maybe you're like in the top 14, okay? So you should probably leave church and kind of have a pity party that you're only like 14th percentile richest in the world. Woe is me. Woe is me. Think about how insane that is. That if you work a minimum wage job, you are insanely filthy rich. What are you doing with that, right? And you don't have to answer to me, but to God, right? Tithing, it's a bad ceiling, but it makes an excellent floor. So I, I want us to walk through this because we're like Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. All right. Somebody say, get to the New Testament. All right, I will, I will. Yes, sir. Here we go. New Testament principles, okay? I just want to fire off a couple principles that you're able to take with you. You're able to do deeper study, okay? For the sake of time, I'm just going to give this as homework, right? Ready? First one is give on the Lord's day. First Corinthians 16, two, first day of the week. Everybody put aside what they would give, okay? Uh, an abundance as abundance increases. Very same verse, as abundance increases, as I receive more, I, I give more. That, that's a New Testament deal, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. How about this one? Romans 14, 6 through 8, give as unto the Lord. Why is that a big deal? Do you believe that giving isn't always equal in your motivation? Do you believe that some of us give for wrong reasons? Do you believe that maybe in the past you've given for wrong reasons, that your heart wasn't right, that your mind wasn't in the right space? I, I think we would all agree, yeah, guilty, guilty, guilty. 
Here's what Romans 14 calls us to. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, since there's thanksgiving, gratitude rising up, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to our himself. None of us will die to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Everything is to him. No matter what God is choosing to put on your heart and leading you, are you doing it for him? The focus is vertical. It's not horizontal. I'm not doing it because anybody said anything. Anybody's forcing me. I need to do it because I've gotten alone with God and God is speaking directly to me about my next steps and my obedience. Do it as unto the Lord all over the New Testament. How about this one? Give sacrificially. A sacrifice. A sacrifice. Where would we get that from? If you want to jot that down, I don't know if you have it there. Mark 12. Mark 12, 43 and 44. From the story of Jesus about the wealthy man and the impoverished widow. And Jesus highlights, this is crazy, right? Jesus is watching individuals walk up and give their offering. And the moment this widow kind of stumbles up the stairs and in her hands are maybe a couple couple pennies, and he calls attention to such a scene and says, guys, guys, get over here. Get over here. You've got to see this. And I'm sure the disciples are like, what is happening right now that like he's stopping us in our tracks, getting our focus over here? There's got to be like an insane event going on that we all need to huddle up and, and gaze over at. And he's like, watch what this woman is doing. And they're like, a couple of pennies, big deal. Jesus, really? Really? I feel like what we were doing earlier is a little bit more important than this. He's like, you need to understand what's happening right now. When we give, we give sacrificially. The rich dude that just walked up with a big stack of cash, that did nothing to him. He, he's got millions more. He sacrificed nothing, but she, she, she gave everything. So is it about the amount? It's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. It's not about equal amount of giving. It's equal sacrifice all through the New Testament especially in this awesome parable in Mark 12. How about this? Give cheerfully. Do you believe that it's wrong for you to give and not be happy about it? Well, God, God thinks so. Should, should we take a peek? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, this week, I want you to dive into this. When I give to God's work, I'll never be disappointed when I look at giving cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. When is the last time that when you gave, you were like, I'm so excited about sacrificing because I know that God's kingdom is advancing, even though it hurts me a little bit to give. This is doing something that's eternal. I'm investing in forever. Uh, is that going to bring a smile on your face? If you see the way God sees, if you give the way God gives, I hope everybody's like, yeah, that changes everything. Instead of, do I have to? Do I have to? God's like, don't give. Don't give. Stop giving if your attitude is not one of cheer, gratitude, joy. And lastly, give personally. It's got to be personal. We, we say to ourselves, I am going to set aside an amount. I, it's going to be personal. 
between God and I, I am going to give in such a way that is not just cheerful, not just sacrificial, but it's deeply personal. And, and I came across this probably over a decade ago, and it, it has stuck with me ever since. This is so, so powerful. It has been for me. This changed everything. 90% with you and God is more than 100% with you on your own. I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, or, or a variation of that, that kind of quote, and I thought, I do not think that way. And some of you know my backstory. I, I was not raised in church. I did not have a generous, cheerful, sacrificial spirit coming to Christ. And when Sarah and I heard that early on in our marriage, we were already at a place that she had been raised in the church. Her parents were insanely generous and sacrificial. And it's just wild that she was able to watch firsthand this happen in her home. Every single day, she was able to watch mom and dad say, uh, we are never going to miss giving. No matter what happens, we're going to ensure that our money is not our money and it, our money that belongs to God is in God's house. It's, it doesn't stay home, right? And so she was able to watch her parents give 10%. And then when it was all said and done, after missionaries and sacrificing and giving for the needs of others, she was able to be raised in a home that probably gave upwards of 20% gross of everything they made was going towards ministry. I'm assuming that there's not a whole lot of us that were raised in homes like that. Some of you were probably raised in homes a little closer to my upbringing of 100% with me is awesome. 100% of me trusting in me and me getting it done and that's the way we're going to live. And, th and that's, what, that's what I saw. It, but here's the beautiful story. I've been able to watch my family radically change. I was the first one to become a Christian in my home. And then I was able to watch brothers, sister-in-laws, parents all coming to Christ. And one of the things that happened was my dad, who is already thinking that he was pretty generous, recognizing I have not known generosity until I've known this generous father and it's changing everything about how I view money. And since the moment my dad came to Christ in his late fifties has given and given and given. And every time I would talk to him as a young Christian in it through his sixties, he would be like, John, I found out that there's like this awesome ministry going on and we're going to start giving to that. And if you guys ever end up on the mission field, we're, we're going to help fund the, like the majority of that. And all of a sudden, my parents came alive when they came alive to Christ. And I wonder for us, even though we've been in church, even if you were raised around some generosity or you had zero examples, everything can change today, right? You can say, as of today, I can trust God that 90% with God and I is so much better than 100% with me all alone by myself, because God is faithful. He is faithful. Somebody say he's faithful. Here we go. Number three, generous giving tests my faith. Back to Malachi 3. Are you there? Are you there? Malachi 3, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, says God. But you say, how have we robbed you? Tithes, contributions, offerings. And this is the next statement. Are you ready? 
You are cursed with a curse. Whoa, 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 time out, time out. Cursing, I, I, I don't know how I feel about the whole curse thing. Well, can we clarify? Under the blood of Jesus, he was slaughtered, tortured, and killed, and absorbed the wrath. He was under the curse on the cross for us, that we would no longer experience the curse. So what does this mean for us today? Can we just clarify? There are consequences to the decisions that we make. God is not cursing his kids, but he is allowing very specific consequences to the actions that we take. So here we go. Here we go. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, right? This indictment was for all of God's people at the time. Just imagine hearing that. And every single one of them, what, what, us? I mean, not, who are you talking to? We're, we're doing just fine. We have not done anything wrong. Still in denial. In verse 10, here's the response that he is looking for. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So the idea of feeding the priests, that there was a segment of God's people dedicated to doing God's work. And the idea was when it's harvest time and you're bringing in the full harvest off the top, first fruits, 10% goes into the storehouse that belongs to God's house. And this is how God's leaders are going to be compensated and taken care of. That's how they're going to eat, right? It's the duty of all of the people to be able to give. And the responsibility was there in the Old Testament, super clear. And I believe the principle is still alive and well. <laughs> Think about it. Bring the groceries from your farm to feed the worship leaders and the pastors, all right? They're going to starve unless we are willing to go grocery shopping for them, okay? Obviously, things have changed, but the heart of God has not. And, and <laughs> this is crazy. How does verse 10 end? Thereby, if you're doing this, I'm telling you, put me to the test. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Wait, wait, can we pause for a second? Wasn't it God that said, do not put the Lord your God to the test? Wasn't it Jesus says, do not test the Lord? Okay, can we just settle this right now? If we're commanded not to test the Lord and Malachi 3 is the only place that says, test me, and it's God saying it, what should we do with that? Never, ever, all right, everybody ready? Never, ever, never, ever, never, ever test the Lord unless the Lord says, test me. Clear? Never, ever test the Lord unless God himself says, test me. And guess what? He did right here in this place. Put me to the test. Prove that my promises are true. Push it as far as you can of trying to outgive me. Go ahead and try. And here's the reality. We know this. We can't outgive God. We can't outgive God. There is no way to do it. He says, test me, test me and see if I don't pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need because I'm going to open up the windows of heaven for you. I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. Do you think there is coincidence that uh, last week and this week we're, we're singing a certain song, we're singing, open up the heavens together. Do, do you think that's a coincidence? There's, there's something about us crying out and saying, God, 
Open it up. Open it up. Why the windows of heaven? Here's some imagery for us, right? Think about the rain that we've been having over the past weeks. Obviously, some of us have experienced a little bit more flooding than others, right? Some of us have like swam out to our car. Some of us are able to enjoy the beauty of the mosquito hotel going on. A lot of breeding happening, right? Well, here's the reality. What, what if all of that rain was blocked? What if all of that, there was a, a window holding it back in heaven and at any given moment, those windows are going to open up? And God's like, I've been holding back because you've been holding back. You've been disobedient. There's a reason that you're experiencing the desert and the dryness. And again, there is a principle here. It's not an always exactly, but God says in this one place, test me, test me. Go ahead, put me to the test, put me to the test. If you obey, something's going to happen, guaranteed. And he, he gives us an image that a downpour is going to follow obedience. Okay, I don't know what that means for you. I can share a whole lot of stories of what that's looked like for me and for us as a family. But this is so awesome that God would say, right here, I want you to test me. Watch, watch if I don't open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's absolutely no more need. And I, I just jotted down, how many Christians are living this way? How many of us are willing to test God on this, take him at his word? How many of us are willing to let go of control and start heading up the tithing ramp onto the highway of generosity and test God and see, and just see, see if he won't be true to his promises. How about this? Number four, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Generous giving is a personal decision. It's a personal decision. 2 Corinthians 9, we alluded to above, and I, I just want to do a broad overview here as we think about a personal decision that God is calling up to. 2 Corinthians 9, in the New Testament, there's nowhere else like it. 2 Corinthians 9 says this, there is no need for me to write to you. This is Paul talking to the church, and he's talking about what the church is doing in response to ministry happening. There's no need for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. He's talking about church offering. He's talking about the offering. Everybody say it's about the offering, right? He's talking about we're gathered together. There's needs. The saints are gathered. This is what Paul says. For I know your readiness, your eagerness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. Isn't that cool? He's saying church, church in Corinth, as I am doing my travels and I'm journeying all over the place, do you, do you know what I'm telling others? Do you know what I'm saying? I'm bragging about you. I'm boasting about how insanely generous you are. Everywhere I go, I'm like, you ain't seen nothing yet. You, you should check out what's happening in Corinth, right? All you know is all the wickedness that's happening in that, in that area. The reality is there's a group of believers and they're fired up and they're crazy generous. And as he's traveling, everybody's hearing about the church in Corinth. This is nuts. This is nuts, right? And he's saying that Achaia, the larger region around Corinth, has been ready since last year. And your zeal, your passion, your desire to give has, has stirred up most of them. I mean, could that be said of, of us? Like, 
in all of South Texas and across the state, like word is getting around that there is this little church and they're like, they don't just give, like they give, like, whoa. And the word is spreading and the word's not just spreading, it's stirring other people up to be like, why aren't we like that? Why don't we do that? Why aren't we more like them? I don't know if you've heard stories of different churches, but it does something in you of like, man, your church gives what and how much? That does something for us to step back and go, what are, what are we doing? What am I doing? And he's spreading the news all across this region saying, check out what they're doing. It's awesome. Verse three, but I'm sending the brothers to you so that our boasting about you may not prove vain, right? It's not, it's not empty boasting. It's got to be legit so that be ready. You got to be ready as I said you would. So I'm telling everybody that you're super generous. Prove it, right? Prove it. Otherwise, verse four, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be absolutely humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge you brothers to go on ahead, arrange in advance for the gift that you had promised. You promised a gift. You said you, you would commit to it so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction being, being forced, right? So the point is this, whoever, this is verse six, whoever so sparingly reaps sparingly. So again, we'll ask, how generous are you? Really, how generous are you? Really? Not just the idea of, I think I'm pretty generous. Would God say, wow, like people, people need to hear about your story and your testimony because other need, others need to be stirred up about following in your footsteps of your generosity. Verse seven, each one must give as he has made up in his mind. We prayed, we decided, we are giving. Nobody has forced me. Nobody has twisted my arm. So hopefully you walk away from this message today and you're not like, man, he's just like pushing and, and pressure. Here's what Paul is calling the church to make up your mind, make a decision and do it. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because here's what we talked about earlier. God loves a cheerful giver. So here it is. Number five, everybody say land the plane. Here we go. Generous giving is abundantly blessed. It's abundantly blessed. As we continue in 2 Corinthians 9, for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make all grace abound to you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able. God is able. Somebody say God is able. He's able to do it. He's able to do it. And I believe he wants to. Is that your heart? I believe he wants to do it. Not filled with doubt, not filled with cynicism. I believe it when I see it. Not that. God is able, and I believe he's going to follow through. He's going to come through on his promises. No matter where you're at today, God is able to make all grace abound so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, anybody hearing a lot of alls? That's a lot of alls. It's a lot of alls. Elbow your neighbor and say, that's a lot of alls. Yeah, yeah. All sufficiency, all things, all times that you may abound, that you would have abundance, maybe not the way you would define, but here's how God defines it. Through Paul, Paul says, in every good work, in everything you do, that there would be abundance. 
Verse 9, as it's written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. It's good that God does not change because here comes the blessing. What does the blessing say? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. The idea of seed is whatever is cast out, whatever is invested, God is going to see that it multiplies. And there's a promise. Do we get to dictate what that looks like in return? No, we have no idea what it's going to look like. Do you believe that there's a whole lot of leaders and preachers and authors traveling around the world and publishing books that uh, they can guarantee that this is exactly what you're going to get in return if you just have some seed prayers and seed money going forward for God's work that he's, he's going to guarantee make sure that, that you become rich? Everybody say that's unhelpful. It's really, really unhelpful for us to be considering the prosperity gospel in regards to these truths because it's simply not what God is saying. We do believe we cannot outgive God, but we have no idea what God is going to do in return because he chooses the blessing. He chooses the timing. But is it a question of whether it's going to happen? No, there's no doubt. It's, it's happening. It's happening. And here we go. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, God's doing that. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness. What is he saying? Right living. You are going to be living right. You're going to be growing deeper, more mature. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Do you think he's talking about more than just financially? Generous in every way, all areas of life, generosity out. God's going to be generous in every way. This is awesome. Enriched in every way possible which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What's the result? The most generous people on the face of the planet are people that are constantly giving thanks to God. The end of generosity, the end of giving cheerfully and sacrificially is God, thank you. God, thank you. God, thank you. It's all from you. It's all for you. It's all back to you. And could I say this just as we're wrapping up? If you are a critical, cynical negative, nagging Christian, you are not generous. No matter what you have done with your money, no matter how you give, if you are not thanking God as a way of life, then there's something broken inside and holding you back from experiencing joy in giving, joy in sacrificing, because thanksgiving is the ultimate end. What does he say in verse 12? For the ministry of this service not only supplying the needs of the saints, the, the church is being taken care of, but it's also overflowing in this. This is what God thinks is more important. It's overflowing in so much thanksgivings up to God. All this generosity horizontally is turning people into praisers. Worshipers are rising up because of generosity going out. Do we want our church to be a worshiping church? I hope all of us have a passion of, I, I want to grow in my worship. I want us to be worshiping in greater ways. Where does it start? It starts with a heart of generosity, God says. The reason you don't shout out with praise and thanksgiving is because you are stingy. You're a hoarder. You're a counter and a calculator. You are a fearful whoremongering of the goods because God says, you're cheating on me with all of your stuff. It's either me or you're going to prostitute your heart out 
There is spiritual adultery, and it's got to stop, and faithfulness to God needs to start. The reason praises aren't going up is because the heart is closing down and is hard. And I don't know where you're at today, church. I don't know where we're at as individuals, as couples, as families, but God wants to do a heart work, and it does start with a commitment of, I'm going to test God. I'm going to prove that God is faithful 